This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your story. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get our three best stories every week. Joy Neal Kidney is a listener in Iowa and has a family full of heroes. And by the way, she listens on WHO, and that's a great station in Des Moines, home of Paul Harvey and so many other broadcasting legends. And we're honored and we're grateful to be on that great flagship station in the great state of Iowa. And Joy writes and records those stories for us. She's told a few for us, actually. And here is Joy Neal Kidney and her story titled Reconciling Dad, the Farmer I Knew, with Dad, the Veteran Pilot. An engine smoked and sputtered. One propeller began to stir on the aging bomber. Then another. The third engine started to shudder and choke. Satisfying sounds of old piston engines. Finally, the last one coughed to life. A few minutes earlier, I had been sitting in the pilot's seat of that World War II flying fortress an old B-17, like the one in the movie Memphis Bell, in the seat where my dad sat seven decades ago. My dad, the farmer. As I sat in the cockpit looking out the pilot's window at the gold-tipped propellers, I tried to imagine that Iowa farmer teaching cadets to fly and later being in charge of that big four-engine bomber. In my mind's snapshot of Dad, he was wearing Big Smith overalls, where in the bib, he carried a pocket watch and a decal bullet pencil with a little metal cap to protect the lead point. Shirt sleeves rolled to the elbow, a Pioneer brand seed corn cap, tired leather work boots, and Rockford socks. Vignettes of him guzzling Coca-Cola from a small, curvy glass bottle, leaving for the field on his red Massey Harris tractor, overseeing his crops from his perch on the gate, throwing back his head when he laughed, penciling neat diagrams and math formulas on scraps of paper, catching a nap at the table after the noon dinner, his head resting on folded arms. That's the dad I knew. My husband, an air traffic controller at the Des Moines airport, had called to let me know that a B-17 was there just for a short stopover. So I rushed out with my camera and asked if I could see inside, telling them, that my dad had flown one in 1945. One man led me up a short ladder into the fuselage, then over a catwalk above the bomb bay to the cockpit. He told me to take all the time I wanted there. As I sat in the pilot's seat, a strong breeze 
buffeted the bomber. It swayed slightly. It sighed and creaked, just like Dad's barn on a windy day. I had forgotten about those friendly sounds. My thoughts turned to Dad's thorough instructions to my sister and me for our summer chores. How many half buckets of corn and oats to feed the hogs? How full to pump water into the cattle tank? And Dad patiently teaching me to shift gears on the Chevy's steering column in the barnyard the summer I learned to drive. It began to dawn on me that he would have used that same thoroughness and patience with young cadets. And I could appreciate that, yes, he would have been put in charge of a multi-engine plane and crew of 10. He eventually became commander of the even larger B-29 Superfortress, with a date set to leave for Saipan and combat over Japan when the war came to an end. While in that rare bomber, I was blessed with a glint of my dad in his other life. As a young lieutenant, in charge of aircraft instead of tractors, airmen instead of livestock. To exit the old warbird, I was told I could climb back through the plane and down the ladder, or I could drop out the way the crew did, through a small door right below the cockpit by grasping the edge and swinging out. There's no photographic evidence, but I did it, just like Dad had long ago. I returned to the other side of the chain-link fence to watch the fortress take off. The four engines were coaxed awake, one at a time. Did Dad also love that deep-throated growl? In a few minutes, the awkward to taxi aircraft headed toward the runway. Nose up, tail down. It lumbered behind a hangar. A roar signaled takeoff, and the plexiglass nose emerged from behind the building, pointing the bomber down the runway. By the time that sleek, rugged old warbird leveled off and disappeared in the distance, I could readily reconcile my dad the farmer with dad the young World War II pilot. And what a great story. Again, that was Joy Neal Kidney, and she's from Des Moines, Iowa. And this story comes to us from Des Moines, and thanks to our great station in Des Moines, WHO. And it's so great to hear someone trying to understand her dad's other life, that life before the life. And my goodness... Take a look one day at one of those B-17 flying fortresses. She said it was a sleek, rugged old warbird, and that it was. Indeed, it was the third most produced bomber of all time, and it's unimaginable that we could have thought of even winning the war without our great industrial capacity. Join Neil Kidney's story, her father's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. By the way, we don't think about it often enough, but without rule of law, my goodness, well, you have Venezuela. And now Jesse Edwards takes a look at the misdemeanor system. We depend on the rule of law as a society to help keep our loved ones safe and our interests protected. But the law is just words on paper if it's not enforced. Do the crime, do the time, or pay the fine. If you hurt someone, the state can hurt you back on behalf of the victim or on behalf of the state itself. Which is where things get a little weird. Who am I hurting if I decide to jaywalk across this empty road? Jaywalking is considered an infraction, but in some jurisdictions it's a misdemeanor or requires a court appearance. In some places like Atlanta, it can get you thrown in jail. I could be looking at fines upwards of 300 bucks. That could ruin our day. But for some people, it can ruin their life. You can't really understand the American misdemeanor system without thinking very deeply about the role that money plays. Professor Alexandria Natapoff, UC Irvine. We're punishing people because of their poverty. And at the same time, and this is why I, I frame it as a question of less taxation, in many ways, those fines and fees, that wealth stripping of the poor is funding the system itself. It's funding courts, it's funding probation offices, it's funding public defender offices, it's funding prosecution offices. Say you get caught up in a random bar fight. Somebody feels disrespected, throws a few punches, and maybe you swing back. Nobody sees who started it, so you both get arrested. Somehow, you racked up a few thousand dollars in assault charges, and they want 10% to let you out on bail. Even if you have that four or $500, how are you going to pay for your lawyer to fight the charges? Either way, if you don't take the deal and you don't have a good defense, they're coming after you. What bail has morphed into in the low-level court system is essentially a way of pressuring poor people to plead guilty. Because a $500 bail amount is out of reach for many people, for many families. Most Americans do not have $400 easily lying around. That's emergency money. So if you don't have that money, you stay in jail. And every day you stay in jail with a plea offer on the table is a day that you could be getting out. And so many people take those deals, not because they're guilty or not because anyone has really decided whether the evidence supports the conviction or they should be convicted, but as a way of buying their freedom. Often that whole net of punishment, that experience, the informal experience of going to jail, losing your job, incurring fines and fees and debt can be greater than the formal punishment that any judge ever imposes. The fine can be $500, but you may ruin your credit. You may have spent uh, three to five days in jail just waiting for your case to be resolved. You may have lost your, the custody of your children because of that jail time. So there's, it's really an enormous net, both formal and informal. And the idea is that we, we should be more discerning, we should be more proportionate, we should be more just in the way that we punish. Professor Natapov wrote Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal. She found 13 million misdemeanors in this country each year. 
Hordes of people are arrested for minor crimes, swept through courts where the defendants can't afford lawyers, judges process cases in minutes, and nearly everyone pleads guilty. We should live in a criminal system where if someone has a conviction, we should be able to conclude from that conviction that they did the thing that they were convicted for. And it's not true in the misdemeanor system. All too often, if someone has a conviction, all we conclude is that they were likely to be arrested for all kinds of reasons that may have not had nothing to do with the evidence, that they were likely to have been rushed through the process in a speedy way, pressured to plead guilty, and that they were likely to plead guilty not necessarily because they were guilty, but because they couldn't make bail or they didn't have adequate counsel or because they didn't understand the consequences. And that... and. We have the tools to fix that. We know how to run a lawful system. We just haven't done it in the low-level courts. It's really hard to argue with that. But on the other hand, you can't just let people go around urinating in public. Because that's exactly what people do if you let them. At least in the big cities. It was popular in the 90s when New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani's policing policies were influenced by what's known as broken window theory. If somebody urinates in public, the person is telling you, I got a big problem. This is what broken window theory is all about. I mean, if some guy is urinating in public, you can ignore the problem and say that I'm going to walk away from it and... We're going to make believe there's no problem. That's New York City in the 1980s. That's New York City with 2,000 murders. That's New York City with 500,000 uh, crimes. You have to pay attention to people urinating on the streets. And you have to get people to stop urinating on the streets. That's, that, that's moving toward civilization. That's moving toward decency that people want to invest in. People want their children to live in. You've got to pay attention to somebody urinating on the street. It may be a minor thing, it may be a serious thing, but you cannot ignore it. You have to deal with it. It is against the law to urinate in public. One thing everyone seems to agree on is that there are too many people in this country who are rotting away in jail for victimless crimes. Here once again is Professor Natapoff with a story out of Texas that shows just how far the state will go to punish someone who dares to commit the misdemeanor. Atwater versus Lago Vista is a very famous Supreme Court case, and it's about a, a, a mom in Texas who is driving around the local park at about 15 miles an hour with her kids who were not wearing seatbelts, looking out of the window uh, because her son Mac had lost his toy in the park. And so she had told the kids they could take off their seatbelt to look for the toy. Police officer pulled her over hollered at her, said, you're going to jail. The kids are crying. He, he won't let her drop the kids off to a neighbor. Said, no, you're all going to jail. She goes to jail. She's booked, goes to the cell, um, uh, has her possessions taken, fingerprinted. The maximum penalty for that misdemeanor, criminal misdemeanor in Texas, is $50. She couldn't go to jail for it. It's a non-jailable misdemeanor. She pays the fine and she sues. She said, this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment, my right against unreasonable search and seizure. You locked me up in jail and gave me an arrest record for an offense for which I couldn't even go to jail. And the Supreme Court ruled against her. The Supreme Court said, for any offense, no matter how minor, no matter what the punishment, police officers 
can effectuate what we call a full-fledged custodial arrest, put you in jail with anybody else who happens to be in that jail at the moment. Um, you will get an arrest record. You can be booked. In some jails, you can be strip-searched for the arrest for any minor offense. And that is really the beginning of the net, of the, of the spread of the misdemeanor system, because what it says is that with all the things that we have turned into crimes in this country, as low level as they are, the weight of the state can come crashing down on anybody. So be careful and look twice before you cross the street. And remember, if you're not in the crosswalk, the full weight and authority of the state might come crashing down on you like a ton of bricks. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And we've been listening to Alexandra Natapoff and her book, Punishment Without Crime. And you can get it at Amazon.com. Again, that's Punishment Without Crime. And Politics and Prose, we want to thank for providing the audio. They're a terrific bookstore in Washington, D.C. And you can just Google Politics and Prose, and so much of their content is right there on site. And C-SPAN, my goodness, if you watch book notes on C-SPAN or a lot of their book stuff, the book TV stuff, so often it's from Politics and Prose. So we want to thank the folks there for providing a great public service. And this is just another of our Rule of Law stories in our Rule of Law series, folks. And we love bringing you these stories because they're real. And I just keep thinking about that bail situation because I have a nephew who's been in and out of the prison system. And thank goodness he has parents who can afford to pay all the fines because those fines end up not making it possible for so many young people who've paid their debt to society and older people to get on with their lives. And it starts to feel like a revenue grab, a tax grab from the people least able to afford that tax. I think about this with parking tickets and especially speeding tickets. I've gotten a couple in my life, and when I write that $300 check, I'm really ticked off. And I can afford it, but I'm always thinking, why is it $300 and not $100 or $75? And what happens to that person who can't afford that $300 check? They can lose their car and maybe their career as a result of it. So that's why we do the Rule of Law series and stories, folks, because they affect your lives. And it's one of the rare places where you're seeing Republicans and Democrats agreeing on things. And that doesn't happen often enough in this great country. And when it does, nobody covers it. And we do. And that's why we bring you these stories. Our Rule of Law series, Alexandra Nadapov's book, Punishment Without Crime, here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories. And now we bring you Harlan Lebo, who's written a terrific book, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. One of those events was Woodstock. And Harlan Lebo joins us now. Harlan, what surprised you in your reporting and in your research? What surprised me most is how much I heard over and over again the great feeling of brotherhood and sisterhood that really was there. This was not about drug use. This was not about running naked through the woods of upstate New York. What it was about was people, 400,000 people, truly understanding that people can get along together in really 
really tough circumstances, ranging from August heat to August thunderstorms to mud to lack of food, lack of sanitation. Yet in spite of all that, many of the 400,000 view this as the pivotal moment in their lives. As one reporter said, he could actually feel consciousness changing because of this. And that was the biggest surprise. It had never really hit me that hard before. And you can feel that uh, if you look at, well, there have been several movies made about it. The Academy Award-winning documentary by Michael Wadley called Woodstock is, is good. It doesn't have as much about the social experience as I think should have been in. But if you look at the American Experience program that just came out this month about Woodstock, it's really very much about the social impact of it. And you can see how much it really did change the people who were there. And by extension, the millions and millions of people who later saw the movie Woodstock and shared the experience to the point where it felt so profound to them that you always hear about people who are saying, well, I was at Woodstock, but I really just saw the movie. So that was the biggest surprise for me. Indeed. Let's talk a little bit about where Woodstock and its location. Where is it? Why was it chosen? And talk a little bit about a man named Yasker. Okay. Woodstock has absolutely nothing to do with Woodstock, New York. At least the concert didn't. Uh, that was the original intention. Woodstock is about uh, two hours north of New York City. The original intention was to have a, a concert of probably twenty-five to 50,000 people there. The city turned it down. A, three, uh, two other communities then turned it down. And then in Bethel, New York, which is about 90 minutes from New York City, it's in the Catskills um, on State Route 17, they, the promoters found this beautiful pasture land that was essentially a giant bowl, you know, a, a hillside leading down to this bowl at the bottom. It was the perfect setting for a concert. Max Yasger is a, it was a dairy farmer based in, in Bethel, New York, a Republican, uh, raised in New York City, so he's anything but the rural farmer. Yet he strongly believed that the people who had been rejected by three other cities to have the, where they or towns where they wanted to have their concert had their right to have their concert. So Max released his land to the promoters, and that's where the concert was held. Let me read something because this is not alive enough in America today, and it's uh, well Yasger's conversation with a reporter. I hear you are considering changing the zoning law to prevent the festival. I hear you don't like the look of the kids who are working at the site. I hear you don't like their lifestyle. I hear you don't like they are against the war and that they say so loudly. Well, I don't particularly like the looks of some of these kids either. I don't particularly like their lifestyle, especially the drugs and the free love. And I don't like what some of them are saying about our government. However, however, if I know my American history... Tens of thousands of Americans in uniform gave their lives in war after war just so these kids would have the freedom to do exactly what they're doing. That's what this country is all about, and, not, and I'm not going to let you throw them out of our town just because you don't like their dress or their hair or the way they live or what they believe. This is America, and they are going to have their festivals. And wow, what a great American testament uh, that a Republican... And an old-timer and an old-schooler would say, heck, you got my land. Oh, by the way, I'll take $50,000, please. Yes. Well, he, he lost a lot more than that, I think, in the long run. because, uh, But yes, he did take $50,000 to uh, for the lease of the land, but he was also there to support the kids. Uh, he, he essentially almost opened his home to them when, when he found out that people were selling water. 
uh, it wasn't the promoters. It was some kids who had brought some water up and were selling it by the glass. He opened up his taps and let people fill up his their their canteens and glasses from his property. Uh, but he was quite dedicated to them. And then as it turned out later, uh, he died not too long afterward, but it turned out that he, he worked hard to be a, an intermediary between disenfranchised kids and the families they'd left behind, uh, serving almost as a, as a post office to try to connect kids back with their families. So he really was one of the great unsung heroes of that era. And more power to him for doing that. Indeed. And you write, the vast majority of the 400,000 at Woodstock were just young people challenged by a challenging age as they struggled to find direction in their lives. For many, they would find the beginning of their focus at Woodstock. Talk about that. If you look at, you look at footage of Woodstock and you think about who was really there, it, it wasn't 400,000 hippies, meaning 400,000 dropouts who were living off the land or sponging off other people. They were just mostly middle-class kids. In fact, they were mostly middle-class white kids. Um, it was not an ethnically diverse audience, but they were there to see a great concert. All the people I talked to had a tremendous love of music, but I know it sounds corny to say it, but they came away from Woodstock with a lot more than the music. Uh, the people I all I talked to all work as volunteers at Woodstock in one form or another uh, because they believe that strongly in it and still do. And they believe that it was really the first time that I think they all believed, even after they, many of them had been in peace marches against the war in Vietnam, but... I think it really was the first time that people realized that they could get together as a society and make change and find food for people who didn't have it or find water for people who didn't have it or medical care for those who didn't have it. And that really did resonate so strongly with the people I talked to. And I think for many people who attended Woodstock, too. Well, there's an interesting quote I'm going to read uh, from one of the attendees. I've never seen so many people in one place acting so similarly it really was an eye-opener that so many people could get together in one place and be hot and then wet and then run out of food and still act so civilly. Talk about that. And they did. Uh, for those who brought food, they would pass it around. Uh, they certainly passed around you know, joints, too. That's true. But, but there was a great feeling of sharing and caring uh, because when, when the food stands that were actually selling food ran out of food, there was the, the townspeople, who had many of whom had been opposed to it, realized, well, we may have been opposed to this, but they were inspired by what Max Yazger said. And they made thousands and thousands of sandwiches and brought in food by helicopter and tried to support the, the kids who were there as best they could. So there really was that spirit that we can do this. We can change the world. We can become part of a better society if we just all try. Let's talk a little bit about the chaos because there became food shortages, water shortages, and then, of course, the storms. Were people worried at any time that things could turn south? Well, I think there was worry the whole time because there had been problems at other, at other concerts that were somewhat similar, but not on this scale. Uh, there was a very a big problem at a concert in Los Angeles where kids got out of hand and there was stone throwing and a little shopping center nearby got a lot of the windows broken out. And I think there were those concerns the whole time. But I think the attitude from the very start of we are all in this together, and you can hear this in the conversations that come from the stage, the very methodical, impassioned people who are talking on stage and keeping everyone together and feeling like they were a part of something bigger than the individuals, 
really did make a huge difference. And all of the things that could have been a disaster, you know, the clogged roads, okay, well, you know, we'll walk. Or the fact that there was no food, well, people brought it in. Uh, the fact we're in the mud, well, we'll just be wet for a while. Uh, the medical care, when medical care became a problem and there were clearly a point where it was a serious problem uh, when they just did not have enough medical care, the Army at that point volunteered and there were they brought in both, their, the Army brought in not only its own medical personnel, but there was a team of volunteer doctors from New York City that came in as well. So anything that could have been a disaster wound up turning into a miracle. And when we continue, we're going to talk more about Woodstock, 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. We're talking to Harlan Lebo here on Our American Story. we continue with our conversation with Harlan Lebo. The book is 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. Go to Amazon and buy it. You won't put it down. You'll learn some things. You'll be challenged by some things, too. And by the way, you can find that at 100daysbook.com. That's 100daysbook.com. You can also get it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Let's talk about the media coverage of Woodstock, because this was an intergenerational conflict. The old were covering the young, and they didn't have the words. But there was this one New York Times reporter. Well, he challenged the old-timers at the New York Times. Talk about that. That really was one of the great, the great conflicts that came out of Woodstock was not just how media, American media covered Woodstock, but how they covered young people. And most media, even today, but most media then certainly, had no idea really how to cover the youth of America in any way that, that gave a sense of understanding to what their issues were all about. And Barney Collier, a reporter for the New York Times, was on site, was covering the event, and it was very clear that the people on his editorial desk wanted him to cover this as a disaster story, as 400,000 kids stuck having this huge problem. And Barney Collier did not want to cover the story that way because that was not the story. The story was 400,000 kids enjoying the music and the social experience that Woodstock was, had become. And that, that discussion created a great divide. Supposedly, supposedly some reporters were willing to resign over this. There's no, that's only anecdotal, but, but it, the, there's no question that this went up to the executive editor level on how the story should be covered to Jim Reston, who was the executive editor at the time. And he finally said, look, if, if Barney sees the story this way, this is the way we're going to cover it. And they certainly did cover some of the traffic and the, the rain and those things. But understanding American youth as a social experience really did in many ways start with the coverage of Woodstock that started later. And the best evidence of that is not in the newspaper coverage, but in the television coverage after the fact. All three major networks, and there were only three at that point, ABC, CBS, and NBC, all had reporters on scene uh, on the Monday as Woodstock was ending. And they all covered the story in ways that showed, essentially, that American youth have changed and they're never going to be the same again. And that's, those stories are great to see. You can see them online. They're all available online. They're also shown in part in the American Experience program about Woodstock. 
But there was a great divide in the American in the American media about how you cover American youth. And that was best evidence of it was how the coverage of Woodstock started. Hippies caught in the mud. You quote someone named Ken Paulson, a writer who would ultimately lead up the uh, USA Today as an editor there. And he wrote, the news media didn't know how to cover a cultural event like Woodstock, and they had no appreciation of the art involved, he said. This was no surprise. Newspapers across the country were staffed with people who grew up on Elvis. And it is a giant leap from Elvis to the who. He went on to say, he went on to say media slowly began to realize that they needed younger readers to buy their publications and buy from their advertisers. In the late 1960s and 70s, there was a shift in fashion. There was certainly a shift in music, but most aspects of counterculture just didn't lend themselves to advertising revenue or support for general interest publications. So this is the real battle going on. It's the battle for this thing called a youth market and a battle over cultural tastes. It really was. I mean, look at any newspaper, even a newspaper as good as the New York Times in 1969. There's no coverage of young people and their issues, clothes, styles, music, attitudes, uh, other than, of course, the the caricature of American youth in the 1960s is either um, protesting college students occupying college presidents' offices or hippies dropping out entirely and living on a commune. That's about the, That's about the extent of the coverage of American youth. And if you don't want to look at a newspaper, Look at any at the movies of the 1960s or 50s or 40s. There's no real, there's no uh, movies or television really, very little on television that covers anything that's of any relevance or any great accuracy about American youth of those eras. And in the 1960, in the 1960s, you know, Beach Blanket Bingo. I love the movie Beach Blanket Bingo, but it's no way reflecting what American youth were really like. Um, so. This really did start in many ways with Woodstock, where people finally started to realize that not only do American youth need to be covered well as a social part of the American experience, but also, frankly, as a marketing force in the American experience. They're buying millions of records. They're buying their own clothes. um, They have their own styles, makeup, hair, and a lot of other things, and life values as well. I want to talk about Ellen Sanders' quote from your book. The audience was a much bigger story than the groups. These were the least significant events of what happened over the Woodstock weekend. What happened was that the largest number of people ever assembled for any event other than a war lived together intimately and meaningfully and with such natural good cheer that they turned on not only everyone surrounding them but the mass media and by extension millions of others, young and old particularly, many elements hostile to the manifestations and ignorance of the substance of pop culture. They did. Uh, You think about Woodstock was a city of 400,000 people. That made it the third largest city in New York State at the time. Yet there was essentially no crime other than, you know, drug use, if you count that as, as crime. There were no murders, no rapes, no assaults, no robbery. Uh, That's not saying it was a perfect world or somehow 400,000 kids would create a perfect city. But the point is that they did, even if it was only for three days, show that as a social experiment, they could be together. They could live in harmony. Um, In fact, one reporter at the time said, can you imagine putting 400,000 business executives together for three days to see how they would respond and act? So 
it it really truly was an eye opener. Uh, and it's so hard to understand that these days because these days you can walk down the street and see someone with a crew cut or someone with medium length hair or someone with hair down to their waist, a guy, and no one will think a thing of it. But the social visual values of the 1960s, if you saw someone who was, quote, a hippie, that created an immediate political and social misunderstanding of their role in the world. You know, you've got long hair, you somehow don't fit in. Yep, no doubt about it. And by the way, some of the kids that you chronicle and talk to now as adults were just, as you had said, typical middle-class kids, some from places where I grew up, Westwood, New Jersey, Cliffside Park, New Jersey, Notre Dame students, college students. So the whole idea of what a hippie even was and who these people were who were at Woodstock was, real, in the end, a giant mischaracterization at best. I want to read one last quote, and it comes from Yasker, because it all comes back to him. He's the hero in this in this particular uh, part of the story that you write about these hundred days. These young people made me feel guilty, he said, because there were no problems. They proved to me and proved to the whole world that they didn't come up here for any problems. They came up here for exactly what they said they were coming up for. Three days of music and peace. Talk about that. That really was an eye-opener for everyone. Uh, let's face it, the promoters didn't exactly weren't exactly forthcoming once they got their their concert venue approved they said that they would probably have between 50,000 and 100,000 and it was clear at that point that they had already sold more than 150,000 tickets but the local community didn't know that so it really could have gotten completely out of hand it could have been a major public emergency having 400,000 people on a very small plot of land with no food no water and no sanitation but they really did prove themselves that they were all they all were really there for what they said they were there for. In fact, there were a couple of political expressions done from the stage. Abby Hoffman came on stage at one point and tried to express his political views, and he got thrown off the stage by one of the members of the rock group, The Who, because that's not what they were there for. They were there for three days of peace and music. Indeed. And by the way, anytime I go to concerts and I see musicians do that, I just I, I think they're just so rude. I'm not saying musicians shouldn't be able to speak their mind, but when people are together, they're not necessarily sympathetical with your message. And even if they are, they wanted to escape that for two hours. That was, and I always remember um, hearing and reading about what happened to Abby Hoffman and saying, wow, what classy kids and what sensible kids. That's not why they were there, to get their passions stirred up uh, and to get angered. Um, and it, it sounded like Abby was trying to steal the stage for his own political purposes and faced real rebuke. Yes, he was. Let's, uh, let's close out with the, the, the fact that you, ne you really don't spend any time, and I love that you did this, because you tricked me as I started to read it. I thought I'd be getting some great insights into some of the bands, but you don't write about the music. Why? No, the, the whole book is not about the events themselves. The book, I mean, there's the, I touch on all of the events themselves, the four events, of course. The book is about how we, as an American experience, got to these events, and what has happened to us since. There's plenty of other people who write about the events themselves, and that's fine. My whole intention was to say, how did we get there, and where have we gone since? And so if you'd like to read, there are a lot of people who are writing about Woodstock or about Charles Manson and the murders, and those are all great books. But um, I'm much more interested in why we got to these places in the American 
in the American experience and where we've gone since. And so there's not a lot to add there, and there have been any number of folks writing about it. I walked away from this in the end, Harlan, thinking I have now rethought completely what Woodstock meant to the people who were there. Because in the end, you can watch it on TV, but what I really was struck by, the only way you can know how peaceful it was was to have been there. You had to have actually experienced it. And you talk to the people who did. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Harlan Lebo. 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969. And by the way, if you'd like a copy of Harlan's book for yourself, you can find it at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, or at 100daysbook.com. That's 100daysbook.com. Harlan Lebo's story, 1969, here on Our American Story. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to innovation and business, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll listen to them, and we'll put them up on the air. They're some of our best stories, and your stories are the hour in Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it's straight out of the history books. And we love telling stories about America's past. Annie Oakley was a shooting star, a magician whose magic wand was a gun. Right-handed, left-handed, on a horse, through a mirror, she couldn't miss. At a time when women were only expected to fire up the oven, Annie Oakley fired her way to fame as the world's greatest sharpshooter. In her personal life, she was a sharpshooter as well. She was devoted to her marriage and to her faith. It is no wonder that Annie Oakley inspired scores of books and movies and the Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun. Here's Faith Garcia with the story of Annie Oakley. Late in 1865, a fierce blizzard swept into western Ohio. Phoebe Ann Moses, the fifth surviving child from a poor Quaker farming family, waited for her beloved father to walk home from the mill, 15 miles away. It wasn't until midnight when Jacob Moses finally returned. His hands were frozen solid, his speech gone. He never recovered and died a few months later. Phoebe Ann, or Annie, was just five years old. The family soon lost the farm. Bills piled up. They were destitute. To ease the burden, Annie's mother Susan had to sell the family farm and pet cow just to pay the medical and funeral bills. Here's grandniece of Annie Oakley, Bess Edwards. Annie stepped in and she saved the family. They were hungry. Rather than be hungry, what are you going to do? If you have a talent like hers, 
you make use of it just as fast as you can, and she did. The eight-year-old Annie took it upon herself to provide food for her family, who now leased a smaller farm. She reached for her deceased father's Kentucky rifle hanging above the fireplace, rested the barrel on the porch railing, and shot her first small game, a squirrel. I was eight years old when I took my first shot, and I still consider it one of the best shots I ever made, Annie Oakley. In spite of Annie's efforts, her family's financial situation worsened, forcing her mother to place the children with friends and neighbors. 10-year-old Annie moved into a shelter for the destitute. Here, she learned to sew and embroider, a skill she would practice for the rest of her life when she wasn't shooting. Soon, she was hired out to work as a live-in helper for a family in a neighboring county. Here's Old West historian Virginia Scharf, Annie Oakley biographer Shul Casper, and Paul Fees, former senior curator at the Buffalo Bill Historical Center in Cody, Wyoming. Everyone thought this was going to be an improvement, but it turned out to be absolutely nightmarish situation. She never mentioned their name again in the rest of her life. She referred to them as the wolves. They locked her in closets. They worked her half to death. One day, the farmer's wife, the wolf, Mrs. Wolf, throws her out in the snow because she fell asleep while she's doing some darning. Suddenly, the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out into the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death. So I got down on my knees, looked toward God's clear sky, and tried to pray. But my lips were frozen stiff, and there was no sound. They told her folks, in fact, they told her mother that she didn't want to go home. And they told her that uh, her mother didn't want her back. After three miserable years, in 1872, 12-year-old Annie Moses could bear it no more. She ran away, slipping into a crowded railroad car and escaped home to her mother in Greenville, Ohio. Susan Moses had remarried, but the family was still desperately poor and a mortgage loomed over their heads. Instead of going to school, Annie taught herself to shoot. With her father's old cap and ball rifle, she headed for the woods to hunt. There, in what she called the fairy places, she began her lifelong love for the great outdoors. Annie preferred moving targets to sitting ones. It gave them a fair chance, she'd reasoned, and made me quick of eye and hand. Soon she was selling hampers of quail to Katzenberger's general store in Greenville. Young Annie was now the family breadwinner earning a living with her gun. Here's historian Mary Stang. She was a market hunter and turning a very nice profit. Certainly not something that was at all appropriate for a woman to be doing in that time and place. Eventually, she saved up enough money to pay off the $200 mortgage on the family farm, and her prowess with a shotgun was becoming known around Greenville. Annie wasn't just good for a girl. She was good for anybody. Here's Annie Oakley biographer, Glenda Riley. Annie was exceptionally good. Her father had given her instructions. He was the one that told her, always shoot game through the head so that you didn't spoil the meat. By her late teens, Annie had won so many turkey shoots that she was barred from entering them. In the 1870s, 
shooting well was an important skill for a man, and shooting contests were a favorite spectator sport. Sharpshooters traveled the country, betting on their ability to perform feats of marksmanship and challenging all comers. Here's firearms historian R.L. Wilson. Shooting was of such immense uh, popularity that there were professionals. Doc Carver, an evil spirit of the plains is what he was called. Captain Bogardus, who eventually had four sons who traveled with him. And people were flocking to see shooters like this. One such shooter was Frank Butler, an Irish immigrant in his mid-20s who was starting to make a name for himself on the vaudeville circuit. He was passing through southern Ohio one fall, claiming he could outshoot anyone around. And when we come back, we'll pick up this story, how Annie meets Frank Butler, and so much more. The story of Annie Oakley, here on Our American Stories. to the story of Annie Oakley, this world-class female shooter, and the story of a world-class shooter, Frank Butler, who just happened to be passing through Southern Ohio, claiming he could outshoot anybody. Let's return to Faith. Here again is Oakley biographer Cheryl Casper. Frank is staying in a hotel in Cincinnati, and he starts talking with a bunch of farmers. The farmers say, hey, we have someone in our county who's a really good shot, and we're going to bet 100 bucks that this person can beat you. Here again is R.L. Wilson, Paul Fees, and Virginia Scharf. Frank Butler, this already professional shootist, shows up for this match with hundreds of people watching. And who is it that uh, comes as his opponent but a, a 15-year-old girl who was only uh, five feet tall and weighed 100 pounds? I almost dropped dead when a little slim girl in short dresses stepped out to the mark with me. I was a beaten man the moment she appeared. Right then and there, I decided if I could get that girl, I would do it. Frank Butler, 1924. They shot evenly. 25 for 24 birds and on the 25th bird he missed uh, but he was a very gracious loser he uh, he thanked her for the match complimented her on her skill and then courted her for a year <laughs> there's a charming little girl she's many miles from here she's a loving little fairy you'd fall in love to see her her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies and you bet I love this little girl with the raindrops in her eyes. Frank Butler, 1881. He was in his 20s when they met. She was 15, and yet within a year, they were married. He made himself appear safe to her. He clearly admired her. He sparked and courted her as few of us have ever been sparked or courted and every one of us would like to be by someone. And she was lucky to find him, and I think he knew he was lucky to find her. 
For the next six years, however, while Butler and his shooting partner John Graham performed on the vaudeville circuit, Annie stayed in the background. That was about to change. The story is that Butler's partner, a fellow named Graham, was ill, and she was called up as a member of the audience and was so obviously good at it and so charming and such a novelty to the audience that Graham was never heard of again. At some time, she adopted the name Oakley as a stage name, and nobody knows why, and uh, Butler and Oakley became a shooting sensation. From that day to this, I have not competed with her in public shooting. She outclassed me. Frank Butler, 1925. When the shooting team of Butler and Oakley hit the road, traveling entertainment was in its heyday. Circuses, theater companies, and vaudeville acts traveled the country, playing venues from outdoor arenas to smoky saloons. For Frank and Annie, it was an exhausting life of noisy train rides, seedy hotels, and one-night stands. Their shooting act might be sandwiched in between a body songstress and a scantily clad acrobat. Here's theater historian Don Wilmoth. Variety was a largely male-oriented form of entertainment. There was a great deal of double entendre and comedy. Uh, there were suggestive lyrics and songs. Uh, and there was a good deal of semi-nudity. The acts could be a tad salacious. It was the Victorian age. Annie Oakley, the Christian girl from Ohio, feared being thought a loose woman. She resolved to set herself apart, both in manner and in dress. She began wearing an outfit that completely covered her body, a calf-length skirt, long sleeves and leggings, and a hat that sparkled with a silver star. Her look became her trademark, and this costume, though distinctive and eye-catching, was as modest as Annie's attitude towards her talent. Here's Old West historians Joy Casson and Roger McGrath. She made her own costumes. That was very important to her. It was part of her desire to control her self-presentation. She could move easily in them, and yet she looked, uh, she looked respectable. She looked childlike. Women in the West were just like the men, enterprising, courageous, bold, adventurous, intelligent. The West really selected and filtered people. The women had to be all those things the men were in spades because they were doing most of the things the men were but lacked the same degree of physical prowess. The women in the West were simply the very best America had to offer. And what better example of that than Annie Oakley? Frank soon realized that Annie was the main attraction of Butler and Oakley. In a remarkable reversal of 19th century roles, Frank Butler became Annie Oakley's assistant. I think Frank Butler understood that she had a kind of star quality that he didn't want to overshadow. And Frank Butler didn't have a problem with that. I think he adored her. I think he also was a savvy businessman who understood that she was pretty, she was ladylike, she was petite. She would do what needed to be done to make that rise to the top. And he didn't want to get in her way. As a matter of fact, he understood that for the two of them, the best thing possible was for to let her take the lead. 
1884, Butler and Oakley landed a 40-week job with Sells Brothers Circus, one of the biggest traveling shows in the country. Finally, they had steady work with a clean, family-oriented show. But circus life was hard, and the pay unreliable. When the season ended in New Orleans that December, it looked as if Frank and Annie would have to go back to a life of one-night stands and unsavory characters. When the circus season is ending, the very week that Buffalo Bill's Wild West comes to New Orleans, and it's like, wow, the circus is ending, we need a job, so they ask Cody if they can come on with the show. To Annie, it was a dream job. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was a lavish historical pageant, part melodrama, part circus, and part rodeo. And it featured the finest performers in the country. It offered a taste of the life on the old frontier to an America that was rapidly industrializing. In the crowded urban centers of the East, people flocked to Buffalo Bill's show, eager for a glimpse of the Wild West. This spectacle was the forerunner of Western movies and TV programs. The whole world was fascinated with the West. And as it was becoming settled, those elements that were seen as the foundation of, uh, of America's uniqueness, um, the rugged individualism and um, the adventure and the conflict with Indians and with, um, and with Buffalo seemed to be coming to an end. Uh, Buffalo Bill was a representative, a living representative of that story, of that adventure. And it's that adventure that he put into his Wild West show. Audiences saw the real stagecoach. They saw real soldiers. They saw real Indians and cowboys. There were horses. There were steer. There were live buffalo. It was into this roiling microcosm of the Wild West that Annie Oakley, the little girl from Ohio, first stepped in April 1885. Cody placed her low on the bill, but she soon became an audience favorite. Her 10-minute program combined Frank's vaudeville experience with her talents as a sharpshooter, athlete, and actress. The result distinguished her from other shooters. Annie didn't just aim a gun and fire, she performed. Here again is Cheryl Casper. Miss Annie Oakley! She tripped into the arena. She didn't walk in. She blew kisses. She waved. She was like animated, alive, like this sweet person, but with this big bang gun. And when we return, we'll continue with this remarkable story. And by the way, that Frank Butler did what he did, making himself second fiddle. Well, Desi Arnaz would do the same thing with Lucille Ball. And of course, George Burns would do it with his bride. Smart men. And by the way, we love doing these rips from history. And as always, all the things we do related to history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And when we come back, We'll continue with the story of Frank Butler and, of course, Annie Oakley.
And we continue with the story of Annie Oakley, and we left off finding out how blessed and lucky she was to have someone like Frank Butler, who recognized her talents and just got out of the way and supported her. My goodness, even today, that's a hard thing to find. But back then, my goodness, practically impossible. Let's continue with this terrific story. Here again is Cheryl Casper, R.L. Wilson, and Paul Fees. She starts off slow, one ball, two balls. Glass balls, which when they're hit, uh, they explode and feathers uh, fly out. Frank would toss up one, and then two at a time, and then three at a time. Then Annie Oakley would toss them up herself. She'd toss two or three or four target balls in the air, grab a shotgun, shoot two, grab another, shoot two more. And she could hit all three before any one of them would reach the ground. Then she'd go to six. Her act gets faster and faster and faster and faster until, you know, it's just like boom, boom. Things are just uh, being broken all around. She could shoot with her left hand, with her right hand. She, like, turns her gun upside down or sideways or sighting in the mirror. One of her favorite tricks was to have Frank hold a, a playing card up and she could uh, either shoot through the heart when it was flat against her or if it was held sideways, she could split the card in two, which is a pretty amazing shot. Occasionally she'd miss a shot on purpose and then she'd kind of pout and this was part of the act because she, she could always hit the target. She was somebody who never missed. I think it's an innate skill. She said, you know, nobody ever taught me to shoot. I think it was just a love of a gun was just born in me. It was an instinct and a skill and an ability that only persons who have phenomenal vision, have a wonderful sense of timing, who have hand-to-eye coordination, who have good balance, and who are really very athletic, because a really good shot has to be a really good athlete. Once Annie's act started getting rave reviews, Buffalo Bill Cody quickly moved her to the top of the bill. That season, 150,000 people in 40 cities across America saw something entirely new, a woman who could shoot as well as any man while conveying a youthful innocence. That, whether Annie realized it or not, was sexy. Here's Old West historian Elliot West. She was this really uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, shot. Uh, But what makes her especially interesting is that she was able to combine that with with an image, with a kind of a vision of American womanhood that was provocative, but that many people felt comfortable with. She handles a shotgun with an easy familiarity that causes the men to marvel and the women to assume airs of contented superiority. Springfield, Massachusetts, Republican, 1897. She had some sort of magnetism that that can only come from within. In private, she was quiet and reserved, but in public, she could reach the masses. Annie Oakley's celebrity grew when the Wild West spent the summer of 1886 in an arena on Staten Island. Half a million people sailed past the new Statue of Liberty, then rode on special trains straight to the Wild West. It was the most popular attraction ever seen in New York, and Annie was now becoming as famous as Buffalo Bill himself. 
Frank became Annie's press agent, playing on the deep fascination Easterners had with the Old West. He advertised his Ohio-born wife as the girl of the Western Plains, and he never tired of telling the story of the night Chief Sitting Bull, the old Sioux warrior, asked if he could adopt Annie after watching her shoot the Ace of Hearts out of a card at 30 paces. Here's historian Donald Fixico. When Sitting Bull first saw she had these amazing abilities, you know, to, uh, to handle a rifle and her keen eyesight, then obviously she had some endowed power of some sort that he recognized immediately. When Indian people look at such individuals that have been empowered like that, then we have the greatest respect. Sitting Bull christened his new daughter, Little Sure Shot. For a time, he toured with Annie in Buffalo Bill's show, but the great chief soon left, saying he had grown sick of the noises and the multitudes of men. When Buffalo Bill's Wild West opened in Madison Square Garden in the fall of 1886, Little Sure Shot became the darling of Manhattan. She performed before 6,000 people, many in evening dress. The mistreated, half-starved little girl from Ohio had become an icon of the American West. Here again is Virginia Scharf. It was probably never a woman in the history of the United States who was better equipped to take up the challenge of creating a legend, of creating a myth of the Western woman, and then embodying that myth with the kind of ladylike demeanor that would make her acceptable. It is a remarkable creation in American legend. In March 1887, Cody's Wild West troops sailed from New York Harbor bound for London to perform at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. Their ship was a veritable Noah's Ark. The hold was packed with horses, buffalo, elk, and mules. Dozens of American Indians huddled together, bracing for the first ocean voyage of their lives. Clustered in the bow were Buffalo Bill, Annie, and Frank Butler, but also Cody's new discovery, 15-year-old Lillian Smith, a sharpshooting sensation from California. Here again is R.L. Wilson. Lillian Smith was an expert with a rifle, so much so that Cody himself had said he would pay $10,000 to anybody who beat Lillian Smith at rifle shooting. She and Annie couldn't have been more different. Whereas Annie was modest, ladylike, and reserved, Lillian flaunted her ample figure and liked to brag. Even before they reached London, Lillian had been boasting. Now that I'm with the Wild West, Annie Oakley is done for. Lillian Smith tended to speak very coarsely, and she was uh, kind of rakish. She liked to hang around with the cowboys. And she had this bodice that said, champion rifle shot of the world. It was clear that the Wild West wouldn't be big enough for the both of them. Here again is Cheryl Casper and Paul Fees. Lillian Smith really shows how competitive Annie is. She's worried because Lillian's 15 years old, Annie is 26 now. Suddenly, when you start reading the press releases, Annie becomes younger than she has been. She now starts telling people she's born in 1866. Now she's 20 and she's more, she can compete a little easier with this new girl in the Wild West show. She's practical, she does what she needs to survive. To Annie Oakley, life was a battle. 
she uses those terms, the battle of life. It wasn't something that you skated through easily. It's something you went out and did constant battle. Just about everything she did, she felt she had to work harder than, than anybody to accomplish. On May 9, 1887, when the Wild West show opened in London, Oakley and Smith were given equal billing. 10,000 eager spectators clamored to get in. The crush and fight and struggle to reach the gates was something terrific, reported the London Evening News. In attendance were leading British intellectuals, such as playwright Oscar Wilde, and many of the crowned heads of Europe. Here again is Elliot West. The English were fascinated by America as a place where you could escape the traps of the modern industrial world. They saw America as a place of uh, wide open spaces, a place of uh, the free individual uh, in the wilderness. And I think Cody's Wild West show and Annie Oakley herself spoke to that mixed appeal of America to the English. And when we come back, the final installment of this remarkable story. And you can picture just about everything here. Superb job by our team. When we come back, the rest of the story, the final part of Annie Oakley's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the final installment of the Annie Oakley story. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here again is Mary Stang and Paul Fees. Annie particularly was a figure that Europeans welcomed because on the one hand she represented the, the wild western girl. But at the same time... She was a Victorian woman who was there, after all, to meet the woman who created the Victorian era. All of the performers of the Wild West were invited to give a special performance for the Queen of England. The performers were presented to the prince, Prince Edward, and his wife, Princess Alexandra. And Annie Oakley marched up and shook Alexandra's hand. Instead of walking up and curtsying to the king-to-be, she shook Alexandra's hand. You'll have to excuse me, please, because I'm an American, and in America, ladies come first. Annie Oakley to the Prince of Wales, 1887. The most important shooting event in England was the annual rifle competition at Wimbledon, and the big-name American shooters were invited to compete. Lillian Smith was the first to arrive. She shot poorly and left in a huff. The next day, Annie Oakley appeared. Here again is Cheryl Casper. Annie does great, and she does it with a rifle. And Lillian's supposed to be the rifle expert. Annie's the shotgun shooter. So she has upstaged Lillian Smith, kind of beaten her at her own game. Annie becomes the toast of London. Some papers even said she was more popular than Cody. When a distinguished sports editor in attendance praised Annie's ladylike bearing above her shooting, she considered it the best compliment she ever received. Whether it was over Lillian or Annie's rocky relationship with Buffalo Bill, 
In late October, the London Evening News printed a stunning announcement. Annie Oakley would sever her connection with the Wild West voluntarily, following their final London performance that very evening. Two years passed. Then in February 1889, much to Annie's surprise, Buffalo Bill was planning a trip to Paris and wanted her back. Here again is Cheryl Casper. They needed her. They needed her more than they thought they needed her. And so whatever rift there was is mended. And interestingly, Lillian Smith does not go to Paris. I mean, we don't know, but it would make sense that maybe that was part of the bargain. I'll come back if Lillian goes. Over 30 million people came to the Paris Exposition of 1889. Within sight of the newly erected Eiffel Tower, Buffalo Bill's Wild West played to overflow crowds night after night. On opening night, when Annie made her entrance, she noticed hired clappers. I want honest applause, or none at all, she insisted. Annie Oakley was soon the talk of Paris. The French president offered her a commission in the army. When a French duke proposed marriage, Annie literally shot him down, putting a bullet through his portrait. Prince Wilhelm of Prussia was so impressed by Annie's skill that he insisted on participating in her act. He lit a cigarette. From 30 paces, Annie shot it away. If my aim had been poor, she later said, I might have averted the Great War. And the king of Senegal tried to buy her for 100,000 francs to destroy the vicious lions that devastate my country's villages, he said. In 1983, the World's Fair opened in Chicago and glowed with a new marvel, electric light, and showcased another, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, a primitive device for viewing movies. In 1894, Edison invited Annie and Frank to his New Jersey studio for a test of his movie camera. In dim, smoky images, Edison's camera managed to capture Annie's performance. Ironically, the invention also signaled the end of the Wild West shows. By the early 1900s, movies would become the main source of Western entertainment. But for the rest of the 1890s, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill were as popular as ever. Then, at 42 years of age and from out of nowhere, on August 11, 1903, headlines screamed of her downfall. William Randolph Hearst newspapers reported that Oakley had stolen a pair of men's pants to buy cocaine. Annie Oakley, the most famous rifle shot in the world, lies today in a cell at the Harrison Street Station for stealing the trousers of a Negro in order to buy cocaine. Chicago American, August 11th, 1903. Here's Paul Fees. Well, of course, it wasn't true. She was so outraged. It so went contrary to her character that she sued against every newspaper that had run that story. Uh, and she won in virtually all of them. Hearst had to pay her $27,000. But after expenses, she actually lost money over the course of her six-year campaign. But Annie Oakley never left the public eye. She used her celebrity to encourage women to be physically fit and taught thousands to shoot. Throughout her career, she appeared at gun clubs, defeating male opponents who doubted her skill, then taught their wives how to shoot. It was her personal crusade. 
I want to see women rise superior to that old-fashioned terror of firearms. I would like to see every woman know how to handle them, as naturally as they know how to handle babies. Here again is Mary Stang and Cheryl Casper. She was a very early advocate of women's use of firearms for self-defense. She believed that it was thoroughly appropriate for a one woman to have a, a, a gun at her bedside. And she also argued that women, especially if they had to be out and about alone, ought to think seriously about carrying firearms for self-protection. This is when she starts sounding like a feminist. You know, I think women should have the right to protect themselves and carry a gun. And she even appears in the Cincinnati newspaper article showing how to hide your gun under an umbrella so no one will know you have it. And then if someone attacks you, you can pull it out. Annie never asked for a cent from her 15,000-plus pupils. She would be repaid, she said, if the women became shooting enthusiasts. They did. One, a proper Bostonian, coolly held a robber at bay until the police came to arrest him. She credited Annie for her success. Here again is Paul Fees. She felt it was very important for women to be able to conduct themselves without fear in a man's world. And she took steps to teach them. As I have taught over 15,000 women how to shoot, I modestly feel that I have some right to speak with assurance on this subject. Individual for individual, women shoot as well as men. Annie Oakley, 1926. Annie had once offered to lead a company of 50 lady sharpshooters to fight in World War I. But for the most part, she left politics to men. Annie Oakley didn't even think women should be allowed to vote. Although she did not espouse women's suffrage and she didn't talk about all of the issues that were important to the so-called new women of her time, arguably Annie was living a lot of the values that her feminist sisters were arguing for. Perhaps she didn't see herself as needing feminism to achieve what she had been able to achieve. Then... On November 3, 1926, Annie Oakley died at her home in her sleep. She was 66 years old. 18 days later, Frank Butler, too, was gone. They were buried beside each other in Greenville, Ohio, not far from the fairy places she had roamed as a little girl, with rifle in hand. Will Rogers, who had visited Annie just months before her death, penned a newspaper story about his fellow Western performer that could have served as her eulogy. She is a greater character than she was a rifle shot. Annie Oakley's name, her lovable traits, her thoughtful consideration of others, will live as a mark for any woman to shoot at. Here again is Virginia Scharf. There's never been anybody like Annie Oakley. There's never been somebody who had both the power of the gun and this power of a kind of sweetness and purity that makes her safe even though she's holding that gun in her hand. From movies, musicals, and television shows to women's self-defense classes, the legend of Annie Oakley and the life of Phoebe Ann Moses reflect the qualities that best define the American character. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, by Faith Garcia and Greg Hangler as well. 
And I just can't get the picture out of my head of Sitting Bull with this young lady and him calling her a little sure shot out on the trail. And that is the circuit, I should say, because sooner or later Sitting Bull had had enough of the big cities and just wanted to get back home. And I also keep thinking about all of those young ladies and women that Annie Oakley was training to, well, to take care of themselves, to not be afraid. And I think of my own girls, my wife and my daughter, and I think there are eight firearms between them in my home, and they know how to use them, and they know how to take care of themselves, and they are not afraid. What a tradition, what a story. And my goodness, eight years old, tragedy befalls her, 11 years old, three years straight, she spends as practically a slave comes back home, earns her keep, and ultimately goes out on the road to become an international celebrity, all while trying to maintain her Victorian dignity at a time when, well, so much else was challenging her femininity. The story of Annie Oakley, and in a sense, her husband, Frank Butler, too, dying only 18 days apart. And that happens so often, folks, in great love affairs. Their stories here on Our American Stories. Sharpshooter, daughter and wife, she could split. 